0: 1 Samuel chapter 14. We're gonna do the whole chapter this morning. Well, most of it, most of it, 46 verses. Because it's one ongoing story, and there's so much, again, to be gleaned from this, I'm gonna give you, I think about five points this morning, and each one could be a sermon by itself. That is not talking about how long this is gonna go. It's just saying that there's so much richness in the scriptures and in what we're gonna look at today. But if you skip ahead and just look at verse 43, let me give you kind of a tantalizing end to the story, and then we'll come back and try and figure out what's going on here. Saul said to Jonathan, 1 Samuel 14, 43, Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. So Jonathan told him and said, I indeed tasted a little honey with the end of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I must die. Saul said, may God do thus, and more also, for you shall surely die, Jonathan. Father and son, how did we get there? Well, you're gonna go back to the beginning of the chapter and we'll find that out. But you need to understand something. Going into 1 Samuel 14, And that is that much of the backdrop of the Bible is war. You ever thought about it that way? If you're reading through the scriptures and you're studying the word of God, how often you come across stories of war. I mean, from Abraham to Moses to Joshua, all the way through the judges, conflict with the enemies of God and his righteousness is a constant It's happening all the time. You continue forward through the monarchy of Israel, we're gonna see war after war after war, many battles, and then we're gonna get into prophecies of war, some of those wars now fulfilled, some of those wars yet to come. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 6, you'll be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See to it that you're not frightened, for those must take place, but that is not yet the end. And then in the New Testament, we find that war is a constant theme as well, a, a picture of the Christian life. That Paul says in Ephesians six twelve, very familiar to many of you, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenlies. War, spiritual warfare is a constant in the scriptures, and we may joke about spiritual warfare when the coffee machine's not working or the computer glitches, spiritual warfare. But we are engaged in a very real fight. And there's no questioning or denying it, especially when we see casualties, especially when people take hits. Following after Jesus, it means entering the fray. Coming to faith is going to war. That is the reality, that is the truth of the world in which we live that conflict is a constant. If you turn in your Bibles, keep your finger in 1 Samuel 14, turn all the way over to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. Take you a few places this morning outside of 1 Samuel 14, not all of those, but a few. Matthew chapter 10 in the New Testament, and listen to how Jesus describes, not, not, the res, not the reason for his first coming, but the result of his first coming. Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. We've contrasted that with the angels saying, peace on earth, goodwill toward all those on whom his favor rests, right? Peace on earth. At the coming of Jesus, when he was born a child, this is the result, not the reason. The reason Jesus came was for peace on earth. The result of his coming would be conflict. And Jesus knew this. And so in his first coming, he said, this is the deal. This is the deal, my coming will produce conflict you can count on it keep reading verse 35 for I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law a man's enemies will be the members of his household now he's quoting scripture here and he's explaining this is going to be the result my coming because if you come to faith you go to war That's not to say that we come to faith in Jesus and we head out to try and duke it out with and fight and kill anyone who gets in the way. That is not what he's saying. But the result of faith, the result of following after Jesus, the result of choosing righteousness is this wicked world will be in conflict with you, will war against that. Jesus made it very clear. And then he goes on in verse 37, he says, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. The backdrop of war it's not just in the teaching of the scriptures, but it is in the very faith that we profess, the backdrop of war and conflict, which leads us really to one ultimate question, and that is, would you lose your life for Jesus? I'm not saying, would you give up things that you love to do, you know, like cake during Lent. I'm saying, would you lose your life? Would you have given the choice? I remember as, as a kid uh, thinking through this, you know, ha- having kind of a panic moment of would I ever be called on to die? I think some pastor said it sometime, and it just freaked me out. Would I be if I was ever called on to die or renounce Christ? Could I? Could I? Could I accept death? Could I die for him? That's a very real question. People have faced it for two thousand years renounce Christ or die. They're called martyrs. And they're those who have literally humbled themselves to death because of their faith in Jesus. Would you lose your life for Jesus? Well, keep that in the back of your mind as we look at this next war. In fact, we're on the verge of war when we pick up the study. Tensions are running hot between Israel and the Philistines in the beginning of chapter 14. It says, now the day came that Yonatan, we're gonna call him Yoni, because that would be the Hebrew nickname, Yanni or Yonatan. The day came when Yanni, the son of Saul, said to the young man who was carrying his armor, come, let us cross over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Why? There's something already at odds between Yanni and his father, King Saul. And so... Yonatan, for whatever reason, and I have my guesses, said to his armor bearer, let's take the fight to them. I think because he knew if he asked his father, his father would say no. Verse two, Saul was staying on the outskirts or in the outskirts of Gibeah under the pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. And the people who were with him were about 600 men. And Ahiah, the son of Achitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the priest of the Lord at Shiloh, was wearing an ephod, and the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. That's a statement in conflict right there. He's wearing the ephod, which is what the high priest would wear that contained the urim and the tumim, which we still don't understand exactly what that means, But he's wearing this and this is what was used to get answer from the Lord. What the writer is telling us is he's wearing the ephod but they don't have a clue. We'll see this even more toward the end of the chapter. He's wearing the ephod but they're not getting any answers from the Lord. Jonathan and his armor bearer slip away. Nobody knows, not even the high priest who should have some idea of what's going on. The people did not know Jonathan had gone. So what's happening as we start out here? Jonathan is on the move. He and his unnamed armor bearer, who is an impressive guy in this story without name, they are crossing over against a Philistine stronghold. Meanwhile, back of the pomegranate tree, Saul is sitting on his rule, not doing anything. He is motionless at this place called Migron. Migron means precipice. And I shared on Wednesday night, it is as though the leadership of Israel is on the precipice of collapse because they're not doing anything. The Philistines have amassed and Saul with his 600 or so at Migron is just sitting under the pomegranate tree. He is not moving forward. Yoni is deployed, Saul is dormant. And that great contrast is seen through most of this chapter. And to make matters worse, Israel's current priesthood is impotent. It's not just that the ephod isn't working, it's that the priest isn't a priest, at least not in the eyes of God. Think back to 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 14. He says, I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Eli's household is out. And that's why he tells us in verse 3 that this Ahiah." This high priest Ahia is the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, remember Ichabod means glory gone, no glory, the son of Phinehas, Hophni and Phinehas were the two sons of Eli. So this lineage from Eli right down to Ahia is over. This is done, this priesthood is no more in the eyes of God, and this is a mess. You have a motionless king, you have an impotent priest, And then you've got one man in his armor bearer saying, I'm not sitting around anymore. We are gonna take this battle where it belongs. Some Christians in our spiritual battle fight like Yanni with bold faith. There are those who take it to the enemy. There are those who who take the fight forward. And then there are some who are like Saul and his priest Ahia. Saul... Who is at this point static royalty, and Ahia, who is feeble clergy. Static royalty and feeble clergy. Do you realize how opposite that is of our call to the faith? What do you mean? Static royalty. Are we called to be static, motionless royalty? Well, we are called to be royalty, 1 Peter 2, 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may sit under the pomegranate tree. No so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light so that you can be a bearer of the gospel. We are a royal priesthood. Do you understand how royally empowered we are? The Bible says in Revelation 1, 6, note this, he has made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. Oh, I know, I know that, Rick, I I know that we're gonna be a kingdom. I know that we're gonna be priests, that we're going to rule and reign with Jesus in the millennial kingdom. I'm looking forward to that. He doesn't say that he will make us. He says he has made us. Revelation 1.6 is not looking forward. Revelation 1.6 is looking us in the eye. He has made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. Now the kingdom in its full understanding is coming. This is not the kingdom, but we're a kingdom. We're citizens of that kingdom, and we have been called, have been made priests. That's the promise. And then what about this idea of uh, of, 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 of a static royalty, of, of a feeble clergy. Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 12, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So we are called to be a, a royal fighting force and we are called to be a priesthood trusting in the Lord So with war in the background and that calling before us, what are we gonna do with it? Well, let's follow the story through. Five considerations in chapter 14. As we do this walkthrough and keep your eyes on Yoni and on Shaul, Saul, his father. Consideration number one, bearing faith. Bearing faith, verse four. Between the passes by which Jonathan sought to cross over to the Philistines' garrison. There was a sharp crag on the one side and a sharp crag on the other side, and the name of the one was Botsets, and the name of the other was Seneh. Botzets and Seneh. I love how the Bible names crags. What is the point of naming these crags? Why does scripture give us this? Well, first of all, that's what they were called. They were just called Butsets and Sinet, So those were the names. This actually gives us a very specific location. In fact, today, these two crags remain, and right through the middle is the Wadi Suwanit, the Wadi Suwanit, which heads into Jordan. So we know right where this is taking place. The Bible is so good about giving us location that we can track down and discover. So they were called these two names, so the Bible calls them by these two names, but I think there's more because God, he has a way of delighting in biblical application. See, the interpretation is the location. This is where it happened. But the application, what we can draw out of this is looking at these two names and considering, like we so often do, what they mean. Both sets, both sets means glistening white. Sene means thorny. So you've got the crag, one crag that is glistening, one crag that is thorny. And whether your way in the fight through the rocky crags is gonna be glistening or thorny all depends on your faith. The way that you take is going to depend on your faith. The rocks and the tight spots and the crags of our life, they're gonna be there. You are not gonna go through life unscathed. You are not gonna go through life without facing the difficulties of these steep climbs. They are part of our existence. The question is, is your way gonna be thorny or is your way going to be glistening with the glory of God? Will it be bright or will it be difficult? Well, I can't choose if my life is difficult. No, but you can choose how to live by faith in the difficulties. You can choose how you are going to walk. You can choose to walk along the thorny crag or you can walk along the glistening. It is completely up to your faith. That is whether or not you're gonna bear faith in the Lord. Are you trusting in him even in between the sharp crags? Second Corinthians chapter three verse 18 says, we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from glory that is from his glory to glory that is back to his glory. He's the one with the glory. The glory is affecting us from him and taking us to him from glory to glory just as from the Lord, the spirit, and the transformation of our lives happens in between the sharp crags, both sets and sine. By the way, Sets has another possible interpretation, another possible, possible meaning. It can be glistening as in beautiful and, and bright, but it can also be glistening as in slippery. Slippery. Slippery and thorny. Wow, that's the, that's the story of my life. Is it or is it glistening with glory? It depends on what you're willing to believe. It depends on your faith. But look at verse six, because suddenly now we hear something about Yonatan, Yoni, that we did not know. We hear about his faith. He said to the young man who is carrying his armor, come, let us cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Perhaps the Lord will work for us. For the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. That is a glistening faith. (laughs) I love Jonathan. The story's about him. We'll see this as it continues forward in his friendship with David. It's a beautiful friendship. This is a young man who is humble and who absolutely trusts in the Lord. A young man of faith. It's a great word. When he says the Lord is not restrained to say by many or by few, it doesn't matter if there's two to three thousand or just two to three. It's irrelevant when it comes to the Lord. Jesus said in Matthew 18, 19, again I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. He's talking about asking in faith, asking by trusting. And he says, for where two or three have gathered in my name, I am there in their midst. And in the story we have two agreeing. We have Yoni and the armor bearer. Yanni says let's do this, and as we'll see in just a moment, the armor bearer is all in. But one more thing here on verse six. I I think it's fascinating. And this really explains something of the kind of faith God is looking for. And some would reject this. Some in the church today would reject this as a faithless statement. And I reject that. Listen to this. Come, he says again in verse six, let us cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Perhaps the Lord will work for us. Perhaps the Lord will work for us. You know what in in postmodern Christianity America the perhaps is unacceptable. There are those who would read that statement and say Jonathan is faithless. What do you mean perhaps the Lord will work for us? Of course the Lord will work for us. Of course he's going to do what we ask him to do. How do you know? Are you working for him or is he working for you? What, who, who's in charge here? I love the word perhaps, and I think maybe, perhaps, we ought to use it a little more often in our faith. Perhaps the Lord will work for me. We know, we know that you trusts in the Lord. That's, that's unquestionable. As he says, the Lord's not restrained to save by, by many or by few. God can do this, that's not in question here at all. That's faith. God can conquer an entire garrison of Philistines, not a problem. There's just two of us. Okay, God can do that. That's not in question. What's in question for Jonathan is will he? Perhaps he will. Perhaps he won't. That is up to the Lord. My part is I know he can. So I'm gonna trust him and I'm gonna take a step and perhaps he's gonna move. But if he doesn't, does that mean my faith crumbles and falls apart? Davis puts it this way. He says, faith does not dictate to God as if the Lord of hosts is its errand boy. God is not sitting around waiting for you to have faith and then saying, oh, oh, wait, wait, now they're telling us to do this. Now Yanni's going up. We gotta work. We gotta move. No, no, no. God has a will. God has a purpose and a plan, and he's inviting us to trust him for it. But we don't always know what that is. We don't always know what he's about to do. So as we pray, there are those, and I've had this conversation. If you're not willing to pray that God is absolutely going to heal me, don't pray with me. Someone said that to me. I'm like, are you serious? I don't want your prayers unless you're praying by faith that he's going to heal me. What if he chooses not to? No, no, that's not an option. Oh, I see. So now God is your errand boy. Perhaps, perhaps, the Lord will work. That doesn't undermine faith at all. It actually is faith and trust that God, his will, will be done. So verse seven, his armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart. Turn yourself. Here I am with you according to your heart. If your Bible says desire, the word is still heart. Man, do what's in your heart. I am with you, Yonatan. Keep an eye on Yonatan's, or uh, weapons caddy. That's who this guy is, the armor bearer. Man, he is is right there with Yanni in boldness and in faith for the fight. And as he's listening to Yanni, you notice what happens. His faith is bolstered. Yanni's saying, let's go. And he's like, yeah, I'm in. Your faith will always affect the faith of others, either inspiring boldness or causing fearfulness. It works both ways. Verse eight, then Yonatan said, behold, we will cross over to the men and reveal ourselves to them. And if they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand in our place and not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up for the Lord has given them into our hands and this shall be a sign for us. Yoni is putting this before the Lord. And he said, how are we gonna know how to step forward? Well, well, it's gonna be one or the other. Either they're gonna say, you stay down there and we will come to you, or they're gonna say, come on up to us. So Yanni puts this before God, but note that the plan is opposite of what you might think. It's different than I would have put it out to the Lord. The difference is between holding ground and taking the fight to the enemy. You know, normally, I think many people would say, well, Lord, I'm just gonna stay right here until you move. I'm gonna stay right here until you do something. And Yanni's saying, if they say, come up, if they, you know, are taunting us to bring the fight to them, God's in it. If they say, hold fast where you are, we're coming down to you, well, then, then the Lord's not in it. I love this attitude of Yanni. He puts before the Lord two options, and the option that's the most dangerous is the one that he he says, you know, this is where we know God's in this. This is where we know the the Lord is taking us. And it's it's not that as we fight we should be arrogant or brash or just, you know, stepping out. However, I think the faithful fighter for the Lord is the one who is always willing to engage, always willing to fight, Philippians chapter three, verse 13, Paul said, brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Do you remember Paul, on his missionary journeys, he was going, he was setting out. He waited on the Lord, but he didn't wait back in Antioch. He set foot, he went forward. There were times where, you know, we wanna go this way, but the Lord caused us, the Lord wouldn't let us. Lord instead had a man from Macedonia call us to go that direction, so that's where we went. But he was on the move. Waiting on the Lord, we talk a lot about waiting on the Lord here at the bridge. Waiting on the Lord doesn't mean sitting under your pomegranate tree. Well, I'm waiting for the Lord to do something. Well, okay. Take a step and see what he does. Go forward until the Lord says stop. Waiting on the Lord is waiting with expectation. It's waiting in faith, but it doesn't mean you're at a standstill. And I love the Apostle Paul because we see this in his missionary journeys. Just read through his journeys in acts and you find a man who is on the move and if it doesn't work here, he moves here. Always seeking the will of the Lord and the blessing of the Lord in his missionary journeys. Well, this is on the mind of of Yanni. Faith, faith is forward motion in the Lord. Not that we've taken hold of our salvation yet, we know we're saved, but not that we've stepped into that eternity yet, but forgetting what lies behind, we press on, reaching forward to what lies ahead. That's the attitude of faith. We see this in Yanni here, verse 11 going forward. When both of them revealed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, the Philistines said, (laughs) behold, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. We saw that in the last chapter. They're hiding in caves and holes anywhere that they can be unseen. The Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they've hidden themselves. So the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we will tell you something. The enemy is taunting and Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me for the Lord has given them into the hands of Israel. What? He didn't say the Lord has given them into our hands. The Lord has given them into the hands of Israel. You know, when we pray by faith, sometimes we can go right to that place of pride. We can go, oh, the Lord's given them into my hands. How about the Lord has given them to the church? How about I'm serving something larger than myself, so much greater than myself. I was reminded this morning of what a blessing it is in my life to be a pastor, but I'm not a big deal. I'm one of thousands upon thousands upon thousands of pastors in the last 2,000 years. I get to be part of that, and I love huddling into that place and going, this is so much bigger than me, so much bigger than the bridge, so much bigger than the church in the Northwest, so much bigger than the church in the world today. This is, this is historic. We're part of this great thing. And it's not me. It's not you. It's what God's doing. And it's huge. And so Yanni says, the Lord has given them into the hands of Israel. Then Yonatan, Yonatan climbed up on his hands and feet. Remember, they're between the crags, climbing up with his armor bearer behind him, and they fell before Yonatan. And his armor bearer put some of them to death behind him. I love it. The caddy gets a hole in one. <laughs> that first slaughter, which Yonatan and his armor bearer made, was about 20 men within about a half a furrow in an acre of land. That is about a half acre that they're fighting this battle, and they take out, 20 of the enemy, and watch this, there was a trembling in the camp, in the field, and among all the people, that is the Philistines. Even the garrison and the raiders trembled and the earth quaked so that it became a great trembling. Great trembling in the Hebrew is herdat Elohim, a God trembling. This was a God trembling. The hand of the Lord is doing this earthquake. Yanni and his armor bearer go up to fight and God starts things just to shaking. It's not because of two little Jewish guys that this whole thing is coming apart. It's the hand of the Lord and the shaking is taking place. Yanni's faith evoked a supernatural earthquake. God is in this. And it reminds me how much the Lord will shake things up when people will just trust him. God will do it. He'll make it happen. He's just asking us, trust me. Believe me for this. God can do with two or three or two or 3,000. God can do it, and perhaps he will. And in this case, he absolutely does. There's another shaking that this reminds me of in the scriptures. Perhaps you remember that Peter and John had been before the Sanhedrin, and they were, thrown into prison overnight and then called back, actually before they were called back, before the Sanhedrin, they get out of prison and they're back preaching and the Sanhedrin goes, where are those guys? Well, they're back preaching again. So they pull them in and they start to talk to them and they hassle them and they tell them not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus and of course, Peter very famously says, well, you judge for yourself whether it's right for us to listen to you or God. We can't help speaking about what we've seen and heard. Well, then Peter and John go back to the people, and the people are amped up when they realize what has taken place. And in verse 29, well, they begin to pray together in one accord. This is long before Honda was even a thing. And they're praying together, and it says, they said, now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal And signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they gathered together was shaken. And they all were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. They had a little mini earthquake in the room where they were praying. The place shook. And God will shake things up where people simply trust him. By the way, How did their prayers start? In Acts chapter four, just note this, because it's intriguing to me, so often when we are facing tough climbs, difficult crags, you know, thorns and slippery places in our lives, our prayers tend to begin with fear. Oh God, oh God, you gotta get me out of this one. Oh Jesus, I am a mess. Oh, Lord, I am dreading what is about to happen to me. That you know, Our prayers start in that place. Listen to where their prayer starts. This is back in verse 24 of Acts chapter four. When they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, Oh, Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is then in them. Psalm 146, verse six. Who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant said, Psalm 2, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devised futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand. The rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. That's where their prayer starts. Listen to me. They begin not with their dread, not with anxiety, not with fear. They begin with the nature of God. Their prayer in the midst of this threat against them begins with God's character, and it is the best place to start any prayer with who he is. See, we start with who he is and our faith rises. If we start with our fear, our faith is gonna be depressed. We start with who God is. Don't start with your crisis, start with the Christ. Right? Begin with him, recognizing him, acknowledging the God who has created all things, who is all glorious, all powerful, all knowing, all loving, start there. And then offer the crisis before him. It's down in the prayer ways where they finally say, now notice the threats that have been made against us and give us boldness, Lord. Well, they've already got faith for the boldness because they're talking about who God really is. Don't start your crisis, don't start your prayer. And crisis it with the Christ. Jesus even put it this way, Matthew 6, 9, pray in this way, our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name. He starts the prayer with the nature of God. Now I've got faith to bring whatever I need to before the Lord. And so Yoni and his armor bearer, they are not just bearing weapons, they're bearing faith. I love this about Yonatan. We wouldn't have known, but we just watch it play out. There's nowhere in the scriptures, by the way, that says anything about Yoni being filled with the Holy Spirit. We hear about the Spirit coming upon Saul, We will see the spirit depart from Saul. We see the Holy Spirit come upon David. We never hear that the Holy Spirit has been poured out on this servant, Yonatan. And yet, this man is bearing faith. Where'd he get it? Probably not at home. (laughs) Probably not from dear old dad. But I submit to you that Yoni had an anointing, and he knew. And we've been talking about this. You have an anointing from the Holy One and you all know. Rick, why, this is three weeks in a row, talking about this anointing and push me on it. He keeps saying, I know, I know, I know, okay, I know, I've got an anointing, good. Then we've gotten there. You have an anointing. This is not some metaphorical, esoteric idea. Oh yeah, the anointing, the anointing, no, no. The anointing is of and by the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit. If you're in Christ, you have an anointing. The anointing is the Spirit of the Lord. And John says in 1 John 2, 27, as for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you. You have no need for anyone to teach you, but his anointing teaches you about all things. His Spirit teaches you about all things. And just as it has taught you, you abide in in Him. Now, I was asked a question this week. What order does this all come? Gifts, callings, and anointings. What's the order? How does this work? Well, it's very simple. The anointing comes first. The gift, singular, of the Holy Spirit comes first. Now, there are also anointings, plural, that are of the Spirit of God, gifts and callings in our lives, upon our lives, that are given by the Spirit of God, just as he wills. But you're not getting anointings without the anointing. You don't get the spiritual gifts without the Holy Spirit. And the greatest gift that anyone could possibly receive in this life is the gift of the Holy Spirit. And you have the Holy Spirit. And you know, if you are in Christ, you have the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ. But listen to me, it's not the gifts, one way or another, it's not the gifts that reveal the anointing, it's the fruit. It's the fruit that reveals the anointing. It's the fruit that you see in a person's life. And again, we see with Yanni here, nothing in scripture tells us that he had the anointing, but we see the fruit of faith. This amazing faith in this man that is encouraging his armor bearer and and it's defeating the enemy. So, Last thing I'll say on the anointings this week. Um, don't get wrapped around the shield. Don't get all freaked out about gifts and callings and anointings. Listen, ask the Lord. Ask the Lord for what he has for you. Ask the Lord to pour out in your life that which is needed to wherever he's called you by faith. Ask the Lord, but focus on his will. Keep your eyes on Jesus and he'll get you what you need when you need it. He's not going to call you into battle unprepared. He's not going to call you into battle without gifts, without calling, without weaponry. He's got that for you. And he knows what you're going to need when you're going to need it. You just keep your eyes on him. And as you are bearing faith, number 2. Recognize that we will be battling beyond bet avin. <laughs> number 2, battling beyond bet Aven, that means house of Aven, I'll tell you in a minute. A-V-E-N, Bet-Aven, battling beyond Bet-Aven, verse 16. Now, Saul's watchmen in Gabeah of Benjamin looked and behold, the multitude melted away and they were here and there. What's going on? They're looking out, they're keeping an eye on the Philistine camp and all of a sudden that camp is starting to break apart. Saul's sitting under a pomegranate tree you know, he's still trying to get seeds out of his teeth, and he's like, wait, wait, what, something's <laughs> happening? His watchmen say, the, the, the Philistines, they're melting away, they're going. Two Hebrews, Yoni and his armor bearer, are creating shock and awe by faith in God who has brought about this earthquake, and the Philistines are freaking. And the watchman tells this to Saul. Hey, James chapter four, verse seven tells us, submit. Therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. He's mighty, he's dangerous. He is certainly a threat to life and limb. That's about the biggest threat he can be, by the way. But resist, resist the devil, he will flee. A little resistance is all we need. We think, oh, I'm under spiritual attack. Yeah, you probably are, so resist. Fight back. Go to the Lord by faithful prayer. Seek him in his nature and his character. Because we're seeing here the enemy literally coming apart while Saul watches dumbfounded. By the way, it's interesting. Historically, in this exact same location, there was a battle in World War I. The British General Allenby won a decisive victory over the Ottoman Turks in this exact location. You know what he had his troops do the night before the battle? He had them read this story. I want you all to go back to your tents and read 1 Samuel 14. This was the faith that this faithful general was infusing into his men before they went to war with the Ottoman Turks, and they won that battle. I suggest to you that God was in that battle just like God was in this one. So verse 17, continuing, Saul said to the people who were with him, number now and see who has gone from us. So Saul's soulish thinking, his mental perspective here is if the Philistines are breaking apart, someone must be doing something. He's not thinking that maybe God's doing something. He makes an assumption that someone has carried out a night raid. Well, he's right. Number the people. And when they had numbered, behold, Yonatan and his armor bearer were not there, just two guys. And then Saul said to Ahia, bring the ark of God here, for the ark of God was at that time with the sons of Israel. You may recall the last time we saw the ark, it was at Kiriath Urim, which is not far from there. There are so many uh, nuances in all of these stories that we don't even think about. The fact that the ark had been taken into battle by Hophni and Phinehas, right? Taken by the Philistines, the Philistines stuck it on a cart and sent it back, and then, of course, the people opened up or looked into the ark or looked at it in a way inappropriate. Many died that day. They said, we can't touch this, and so they hauled the ark off to Kiriath-Jerim to be kept there. Didn't even go back to Shiloh. Well, now Saul says, bring the ark. Okay, that's a Hophni and Phinehas move, Saul. It's not a real intelligent thing to do here. Bring the ark, for the ark of God was at that time with the sons of Israel, while Saul talked to the priest, the commotion in the camp of the Philistines continued and increased. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. We have, in other words, no time for prayer. For, for, forget it. Look, they're, they're coming apart, and, and you know, it's confusion and it's chaos. We gotta jump in. We gotta do something. Saul starts out asking for a very visual religious consultation. Bring the ark to the king that we might consider the word of God, but the noise and the clamor in the Philistine camp causes Saul to abandon divine inquiry. I said before, faith is forward motion. But understand, faith is forward motion in the Lord. It's forward motion in the Lord. It's not just charging, it's not dismissing, it's moving by request, it's moving By the Lord. Yonatan, before he and the armor bearer attacked, inquired of the Lord, put it before the Lord. And then went on about it. So we end up now with this major dust up and in spite of Saul's soulish leadership, what's happening in the camp of the enemy is Philistine on Philistine. Philistine on Philistine. It says in verse 20, Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and came to the battle. And behold, every man's sword was against his fellow, and there was very great confusion. Listen, this is Philistine sword on Philistine person. It's not Hebrew sword against Hebrew sword. How do we know? Where where do you get that interpretation? These are Philistine swords literally going into Philistine soldiers. They're killing each other right now in this confusion, How we know is we look back at 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse uh, 19, and we get a very interesting little piece of information that seems almost irrelevant at the time. No blacksmith could be found in all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said otherwise the Hebrews will make swords or spears. Verse 22 It came about on the day of battle that neither sword nor spear was found in the hands of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan, but they were found with Saul and his son Jonathan. So there were two spears in all of Israel Jonathan had one and Saul had one. That's it. And so now, as we come to this chapter, it says every man's sword was against his fellow. Guess what? Those are Philistine swords. And the Philistines are killing each other. <laughs> and the confusion is great. As this continues, now the Hebrews who were with the Philistines previously, who went up with them all around in the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Wait a minute, what? That tells us that there were Hebrew soldiers aligned with the Philistines. This is how messed up things were in Israel. There were Hebrews who were saying, you know what, Saul's no leader. He's gonna lose anyway, we might as well fight for the enemy. We might as well join ourselves, align ourselves with the Philistines, with the enemy. But something happens here. They see their brothers, their fellow Hebrews taking up a stand. They see the faith of Yanni and now finally Saul comes finally out from under his tree and these Hebrews switch back to the right side. And that will happen, faith will do that. Faith will even call the believer who has aligned himself, herself with the camp of the enemy. Your faith will call them out. Verse 22, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines had fled, even they also pursued them closely in the battle. These are all the cowards. They're all hiding out. They're all fearful in their faith, but they start to see the faith of Yonatan and the move of their fellow Hebrews And they start coming out of their holes. That happens in the church too. So the Lord delivered Israel that day and the battle spread beyond Bet-Aven. Beyond Bet-Aven. Bearing faith and battling beyond Bet-Aven. What do you mean? This is what happens when two stand up. It's just two who stood up, who took the fight to the enemy and they threw the entire enemy into disarray. This stirs up now faith among God's people. Everybody is starting to come back together. All the Israelites now are starting to fight. Those who are aligned with the enemy and those who are hiding in their hidey holes, they're all coming out. Because one man in his armor bearer said, Lord, we're gonna trust you. Perhaps you will move on our behalf. Either way, we know it doesn't take a whole army, it just takes one or two to trust in you. And so all of a sudden, this faith is stirred up. Are you one who stirs up faith? That's a good question to ask ourselves. Am I I a stirrer in the way I'm living my life and the things that I do and say? Am I one around whom other believers would rally? Is it possible, Lord Jesus, that my faith might call someone out of their alignment with the enemy? Or that my faith will call someone out of fear and trepidation when they simply see that I am moving forward, trusting in you and believing you, taking you at your word. This is battling beyond Bet Aven. Meaning what? Again, the interpretation is the location. Okay? Bet-avin is a real place, and we know exactly where Bet-Aven is. The battle is going to continue beyond, as the scriptures say, it's going to continue on through that day beyond this one location. However, the the application is beautiful. Bet Avin means the house of vanity. The house of vanity. God is delivering Israel in spite of the vain leadership of Saul. In spite of all those who are hiding in their hidey holes, and even in spite of those who are aligned with the enemy, God is delivering his people and calling all of these out of their fear and out of their misalignment back to him. See, this is all vanity. You know, capitulating to the enemy, that is vanity. Hiding out, thinking I'll just stay out of the fray, that is vanity. But the battle spreads beyond the house of vanity, beyond the feigned faithlessness of people. Why? Because God. Because God. The Lord delivered Israel, so the Lord delivered it because the Lord delivered Israel that day. I think we really need to to review this in our faith and in our minds that it's not if, Immorality in this society is defeated. It is not if truth finally at some point wins out. It's not if Jesus returns in glory. It's when. It's when because we know he's gonna win. And sometimes we read the paper and we say, I say the paper, we read the, the, the pad. <laughs> we read the little screen. We read the news and we think, oh, uh, uh, I'm just gonna hide out. When they, is Jesus never gonna come? Come, Lord Jesus. But when we say it, we really don't think he is. That's vanity. The Bible's very clear. Morality will win the day. God will have the final say. The Lord is going to restore righteousness to this world. We will see it. This world is going to see the righteousness of the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. This is not if, it is when. The battle spreads beyond bet of in, beyond vanity, beyond faithlessness, because God is going to do this. Faith for the fight sees the victory already won. Because God, because this is His fight. I'm invited to join him. This is his fight. It's not mine. It's not yours. It's his. And if you are on the side of the Lord, understand that he is already on your side. If God before us, who can be against us? This is not an if proposition, it's a win. It is a win. If you ever feel like we are fighting a losing battle, understand that even the ultimate outcome doesn't depend on us but it does rally our faith. Don't you you want to someday be able to hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful slave. I I love the phrase, I I used to shy away from it because I didn't like the word slave, but it really is, it's doulos, it's the lowest form of servant in the Greek language. Well done, good and faithful, lowest form of servant. I really like that. I'm not even an armor bearer. I'm a slave. And yet I'm a slave who God calls a son. So it, it gives me right perspective. So I'm not proud, Jake, and boastful. Look, I'm just, I'm just one dude. I'm just a servant here. I, I, I'm in the lower part of the house. I'm just doing, you know, whatever, whatever it is that the Lord needs me to do, that, that's, that's where I'm at. But he's gonna say one day, well done, well done. I, I, I can't wait. I, I've said this before. These are the two words I wanna hear more than anything else from Jesus. Well done. The beauty is that the battle goes beyond bet of end, beyond our futility, beyond our vainglorious foolishness. And by the way, speaking of vainglorious, watch Saul, verse 24. Now the men of Israel were hard pressed on that day For Saul had put the people under oath, saying, "'Cursed be the man who eats food before evening "'until I have avenged myself on my enemies.'" I, myself, and my. Know where Saul's head is? So none of the people tasted food. No eating until I get my way. Saul. Saul, I I want you to notice this. Yanni knew the battle belonged to the Lord, right? It's very obvious in the way he goes up and the way he fights, perhaps, you know, this, this is the Lord's doing, perhaps he will do this. Saul makes it all about himself. We do that sometimes in our battles, in the spiritual warfare, even as we use the language of spiritual attack, I'm under spiritual attack, look, it's not about you. Yeah, but I'm the one being attacked. No, actually, you're not. Actually, the name of Jesus is, the, is what's under attack. You just got in the way. You just happen to be there. Yeah, but, 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 it's, but it's me, I'm the one, exp- listen, no, no, it's not. Saul made it about himself, he didn't start this battle, but now all of a sudden he's gonna finish it. Man, I'm gonna fight this, I gotta get credit somehow. This is a problem throughout Saul's life. He keeps trying to get his own credit. It's, it's obvious from the very beginning of Saul's life, this is not a humble man, this is a man who has zero self-confidence. And, and as he moves through his life, what happens? Well, he tries to fill himself up. He tries to puff himself up, because he has zero confidence in who he is. More, more profoundly, he has zero confidence in who God is. He does not trust God in himself. He does not trust God's work in his life, and so he's always trying to shore himself up I gotta avenge myself against my enemies. And so to do this, he's telling all of his people, no eating until we take them out. Saul's foolish pride is wounding his own army. And again, this is something that can happen in the church. Watch this, verse 25. All the people of the land entered the forest and there was honey on the ground. See right there, my eyes perk up. I am a honey fanatic. I'd say aficionado, that's not strong enough a word. I love me some good honey. And by the way, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't like that store-bought stuff, the sous-bee, you know, no, no offense, Sue. Or, or the, the Safeway Select, you know what that is? That's just liquid sugar. I mean, let me just give you a nutrition lesson here very quickly, that that honey that you buy off the store shelf at Safeway, that's just liquid sugar. That's all it is. They heat it up so much because they're scared to death of a lawsuit that there might be some impurity in it that gets someone sick. So they heat the snot out of that honey, bee snot. They heat it up so much that there is zero nutritional value to it whatsoever. It tastes like honey, but it has no value. Give me the pure raw stuff. You know, that, that crunchy has the has the impurities in it, and, and it's got the natural minerals and the vitamins and the bee's wings. I love that. <laughs> well, there's honey on the ground. Verse 26: When the people entered the forest, behold, there was a flow of honey, but no man put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. Yonatan had not heard when his father put the people under oath, therefore. He put out the end of his staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his eyes brightened. Bearing faith, battling beyond beth and now we see a brightening of the eyes. Number three, brightening the eyes. Yoni does the right thing. He's famished. He needs some nourishment. And he gets some of that pure, raw honey, the good stuff. He dips and he eats. And I love the phrase, the Bible says, his eyes brighten. Now he's seeing clear again. Matthew chapter six, verse 22, Jesus said, the eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, How great is the darkness? What is Jesus talking about? The eye is the lamp of the body. He is talking about spiritual clarity. He's talking about faith that allows you to see, vision for for the fight. How do you see your way clear? How do you develop faith in the spiritual battles of our lives? You dip in the honey, you eat the honey psalm 19 the law of the lord is perfect verse 7 restoring the soul the testimony of the lord is sure making wise the simple that's one of my favorite verses the precepts of the lord are right rejoicing the heart the commandment of the lord is pure enlightening the eyes The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They're righteous altogether. They're more desirable than gold. (laughs) Yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. The word of God will brighten the eyes, will increase the eyes of faith and your vision. Moreover, he says, by them, your servant is warned and in keeping them, there is great reward. The pure raw word of God. Like honey is nutritious and it's sweet and it's nourishing and it's rewarding. It's not just some sugary topping that's gonna sugar crash you in 10 minutes. You know what sugary topping is? Self-help books. Man, that stuff, oh, so good. So good what he's saying. And 10 minutes later, you don't even know what you read. But the word of God is honey, pure, raw, the good stuff. How sweet are your words to my taste, Psalm 119, 103. Sweeter than honey to my mouth. Or how about Jeremiah 15, 16. Your words were found and I ate them and your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. That's how you fight. We've been talking about this over and over. Prayer and the ministry of the word. This is how we have the strength to fight and the the attitude to fight and the vision to see clearly with bright eyes. That's what God's word does. It brightens the eyes, it gives vision, it gives understanding and clarity and wisdom. Saul's order, by contrast, is foolish and foolhardy. It's vain. He's sending his people into battle and he's saying, don't eat. How many pastors are doing the same thing this morning? We're fighting a spiritual battle, let's pray. And off you go. Where's the honey? Where's the strength that brightens the eyes for the war that is before us this week? It is right here in the word of God. And yet Christians all the time go into battle restricting ourselves from this sweet word. Don't do that. You will fight better if you feed on the word. And you've got to be in the word the, the, the word, I, I think I said last week, described as milk, meat, and honey. Those are the three descriptions in the Bible of the word of God. Milk, you know, can't deny it, a good glass of milk with some chocolate chip cookies, you need the milk, right? Start off, and the meat, which gives you the protein and the strength, and the honey that is just so sweet and brightening the eyes. Well, verse 28 of 1 Samuel 14, then one of the people said, Your father strictly put the people under oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food today. And the people were weary. Of course they were. And then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See now how my eyes have brightened because I have tasted a little of this honey. How much more if only the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies which they found, for now the slaughter among the Philistines has not been great. We have not fought well. Why, Jonathan? Because dad said no one can eat. Because dad said, you go into war and you don't eat of the sweetness. Listen, I don't understand the mentality that checks out on the word of God. I I don't understand the preaching that bores people with the word of God. Let me just ask, is this a boring story to anyone? I mean, if you're tired this morning, that's on you, because this is good stuff. (laughs) This is God's word, it's awesome, but people will say, well, I I just don't have time this week. They'll say, you know, I'd I'd come to church tonight, but I've had a hard day. You know what I do when I get home and I'm famished? (laughs) I eat. And usually pure raw honey is somewhere in the mix. I'm just saying. How much more do we need the strengthening word of God when we're weak, when we're not fighting well, when we're famished? And watch what happens because of the people's weariness in the battle and this command that they not eat. Verse 31, they struck among the Philistines that day from Michmash to Aijalon. And the people were very weary. So verse 32, the people rushed greedily upon the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slew them on the ground and the people ate with the blood. I want you to get a picture of that. The the people of Israel, the chosen people, all gathered around just tearing up the flesh of these animals and grabbing the meat and the blood's dripping down their faces. And that was never to be done. This is direct violation. This is pure sin against the Lord. Leviticus 17, 11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. I've given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. It's the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Blood is precious, the Lord is saying. Therefore, I said to the sons of Israel, no person among you may eat blood Nor may any alien who sojourns among you eat blood. Don't do it. What are they doing? Eating blood. Why? Because they were famished. Why are they famished? Because they were restricted from the sweet honey. They were not allowed to eat, even of the spoils of war. Until now, they have a few minutes, and they just tear into these oxen, and these bulls, and these sheep. And there is blood Everywhere, brothers and sisters, where the sweet wisdom of the word of God is ignored, sin becomes appetizing. And this is what happens in our lives. Where the Bible is dismissed or disallowed, oh, let's say from public school, sin will replace it. Sin looks tasty. People will feed on bloody rebellion. And by the way, in this culture, and I'm speaking to myself, so so this is not pastor going off on a guilt trip. Okay. Nothing makes this kind of feeding easier than our social media and our internet streaming. And, and parents who are down on their kids about social media, listen, it's it's what you're watching on, on Netflix and Peacock and you know Amazon and any of the others. How many, how many streaming services are, are, are you supporting right now? I, I, you know, this is up to you. I know how many I support. <laughs> and we say, oh yeah, but I, I don't watch any of, of those things. Well, what are you watching? What are you taking in? What are you feeding on? If we are not feeding on the sweetness of the word of God, we're going to feed on something. We have an appetite, and the The flesh is either gonna feed or the spirit's gonna feed. If the spirit feeds, it gets stronger. If the flesh feeds, it gets stronger. Which dog are you gonna feed? This this verse always gets me, especially because today, more than ever before, Christians are indifferently feeding on the very things which dull our faith over the word which brightens our eyes. And David wrote, Psalm 101, verse two, I will give heed to the blameless way. When will you come to me? I will walk within my house, you could say behind closed doors, in the integrity of my heart. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. That should be taped above every one of our TVs, computers, and iPhones. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. He doesn't say I hate those who fall away, by the way. He says I hate the work of those who reject God. It shall not fasten its grip on me. Listen, what happened when David set something worthless before his eyes? Bathsheba as a person wasn't worthless, but what he saw when he had no right to see messed him up and, and basically ruined his family line until Jesus came and made it right. He set something worthless before his eyes. He fed his desire. When did he feed his desire? We'll see the story coming up. David fed his desire in the spring when the kings go out to war, but he stayed home. He wasn't out fighting, he was home watching. The Tales of Bathsheba on Netflix. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. Now if that bothers anybody, If that upsets anybody, if you're like, oh, man, okay, now now I can't go back and watch my favorite show, and I'm three seasons in. (laughs) This should bother us. This should tap on our guilt just a little bit. I'm telling you, it does me. I had to study this going, oh, do I want to put that in there? Let's be honest before the Lord this morning. Do I prefer the taste of blood or the sweet honey of his word? It's, It's really as simple as that. Here at the end of the age, God has warned what I would call a sad, self-fulfilling prophecy in this world. Amos chapter eight, verse 11. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine for bread or water, or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. There's gonna be a famine, a hearing famine, God says. And people will stagger from sea to shining sea. I added the shining just to make a point. People will stagger from sea to sea, from the north even to the east. They will go to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. Why? Because they're so unaccustomed to it. They're just not used to tasting it. That's not a motivational metaphor. That's the truth. Verse 33 Well, then they told Saul, saying, behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, you have acted treacherously. Roll a great stone to me today. Saul said, disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, each one of you, bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter it here and eat and do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. It's such a religious move. When he realizes what his pronouncement has caused, now he's gonna blame the people. Now he said, well, you sinners. It's because of his rule. He says, bring us all here, and so all the people that night brought each one his ox with him, and they slaughtered it there, and Saul built an altar to the Lord, and the writer is sure to tell us, and it was the first altar that he had built to the Lord. So he's never built one before i not talking about like a, a sacrificial altar to replace the altar at Shiloh. We're just talking about an altar of devotion, of commitment, and he'd never done it. This is Saul's life. Saul is a religious man, but he's not a faithful, devoted son. He's a king like the nations, and he's gonna make a big point out of this. Listen, brothers and sisters, covering arrogance with worship never works. Love you, Jesus. Love you, Jesus. So glad I'm better than the person in my road, Jesus. <laughs> and this is Saul's attitude. If our hands are raised, but our hearts are hard, our worship is nothing but show. And God knows the heart. And by the way, this is one of the greatest dangers in the spiritual war that we are engaged in, in the spiritual fight. One of the greatest dangers. Among us in the church is self-righteousness. It wounds others, it steals from others, it hurts others, it blames others. And here it even makes the leader, Saul, he is viewing his fellow soldiers as the enemy. Wait a minute, does that happen in church? Yeah, when I get self-righteous. And I look at those Methodists, those Lutherans, Those Baptists, I'm an independent, non-denominational, true Christian. Don't look at our brothers and sisters arrogantly. Don't make a broad assumption now, I, I, I know what some of the leadership of some of these different denominations are, is doing, what, what these leaderships are doing right now in our culture, and it's sickening because they're making some very sinful decisions. That doesn't mean that the person who attends there is not wholly devoted to Jesus. And so we don't judge our, you know, it's time for judgment to begin in the household of God. I mean, Peter says that. Let's judge ourselves. And if we're gonna judge anyone, let's judge ourselves as a church fellowship. How are we together standing before the Lord? But it is not my place to look at others and compare them to my righteousness. How dare you eat the blood? Well, you wouldn't give us the honey. This is Saul's attitude in verse 36. Then Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and take spoil from among them until morning light and let us not leave a man alive, not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. Saul's on a rampage now. This is the one thing that Ahiah the priest, does well. He says, um, can we draw near to God? He says, let us draw near to God here. Let's check this battle plan out with the Lord first. Now the priest is doing his priestly duty. So Saul inquired of God, verse 37, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him on that day. There's radio silence. The Lord is not answering. And there's two reasons the Lord is not answering. Because of the heart of Saul and also because he already has answered. The battle is being won. Should I keep fighting? Do you not see the victory before you? Of course, you should keep fighting. Why are you even asking me? But it's this heart. And Saul, by the way, number four in your your list is blaming the silence. Saul is now going to blame the silence of God on the people. Verse 38. Draw near here, all you chiefs of the people, and investigate and see how this sin happened today. For as the Lord lives, who delivers Israel, though it is in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But not one of the people answered him because they all knew (laughs) it is Jonathan. He's the one who ate. Saul is trying to discover a sin in the camp and he can't even see his own. He's looking out. There's a reason why God is silent and it's not me. It can't be me. It's someone of you. Oh, bloody people. You ever stop to think that maybe the reason that God is not answering my prayers is I'm too busy handing out blame to others? Unanswered prayer, by the way, is one of the ways that God speaks to us. He doesn't answer. Hey, something's not right. Something's out of alignment. The Bible says, Psalm 66:18, if I regard wickedness in my, ha- in my heart, the Lord will not hear Sometimes God is silent because we're really heading the bad direction. Proverbs 15, 29, the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayers of the righteous. This is Saul's sinful pride that brought about the whole silence. Revelation 8, 1, when the lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for half an hour. What is that about? I suggest to you it's the calm before the storm. Right after this silence in heaven, God is gonna begin pouring out wrath untold on the earth. Well, it's told, it's in Revelation eight through 19. He's gonna pour out his wrath, his judgment on this world. What comes right before it? Silence. No one's speaking, no one's answering, nothing is said. This is not good. Call before the storm of wrath, before trumpet and bold judgments, there is this silence. So how do I end the silence between me and the Lord? There's only one way I know, and that is repent. If you feel like God is being silent in your life, before you utter another word of prayer, stop and turn to the Lord and say, Father, however I am misaligned, I repent. If this is because I've been hiding out in my hidey hole and cave and not fighting for you, I repent. If this is because I've been aligned somehow with the enemy, Lord, I repent. If this is because of my own self-righteousness, my own arrogance, Lord, I repent. Verse 44. Or sorry, verse 40. Then he said to all Israel, you shall be on one side, and I and Yonatan, my son, will be on the other side. Because at this point, Saul can't imagine that Yonatan has done anything wrong. It's all you, my family over here. You guys, you're the problem. We're gonna see this. And so all the people said to Saul, do what seems good to you. Therefore, Saul said to the Lord, the God of Israel, give a perfect lot. So they're gonna cast lots to figure out where the sin is. And Yonatan and Saul were taken. Oh, it's on this side. (laughs) And Saul said to Yonatan, tell me what you have done. Note this. He didn't cast a lot between himself and his son. If he had, the lot would have fallen to Saul because he's the sinner in this mess. He's the one who is doing what is wrong. He doesn't cast a lot. He just turns to Jonathan and immediately assumes that he is the problem now. Tell me what you have done. And you know what? Verse 42, I'm wrong. And I'm not proud enough to admit it. Verse 42 Cast lots between me and Jonathan, my son, and Jonathan was taken. So the lot falls to Jonathan. Can we just erase that from the from the thing? Got out a little ahead of it there. Scratch that point. But I have second service, so I'll get it right there. Verse 43. Then Saul said to Jonathan, "Tell me what you have done." So. Jonathan told him and said, and I indeed tasted a little honey. With the end of my staff that was in my hand, here I am. I must die. Wow. Saul said, Oh no, son, no. No, you, you're humble, you didn't know. We'll give you, we got grace. <laughs> Saul says, may God do thus and, may, and more also, for you shall surely, surely die, Jonathan. Unbelievable. Saul would rather save his foolish pride than his own son. We've talked about bearing faith, battling beyond bet of end, brightening the eyes and blaming the silence but in this warring world please hear me the darkest most depraved place of the soul is on full display in pride pride i didn't choose this topic by the way because of the month But uh, let me say this again, in this warring world, the darkest, most depraved places of our souls, of our lives, are on full display in pride, in pride. Number five, breaking pride. We'll finish here, breaking pride. Thankfully, what happens in the story is the people come to Yanni's defense. In verse 45, the people said to Saul, must Jonathan die who has brought about this great deliverance in Israel? Far from it as the Lord lives. Not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground for he has worked with God this day. And so the people rescued Jonathan and he did not die. Well, then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines and the Philistines went to their own place. Nothing breaks foolish pride like self-sacrifice. The people are all watching these lots cast, watching this take place, watching it come to Jonathan, watching Saul turn on his own son, and they hear what Jonathan says, and what Yanni says in this moment is stunning. Here I am, I must die. That's the deal. Dad, you're the king. Some Bible translations put it as a question mark here I am, must I die? That's not the heart of Jonathan. There's no punctuation there in the Hebrew. Here I am, I must die. And so he is in full submission and a little over a thousand years later, another king's son in essence says the same thing. He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Here I am, I must die. Saul's pride is broken by Jonathan's humility. And that's how it works. That's how you break pride. You don't break pride by marching against it. You don't break pride by holding up signs. You don't break pride by shaking your fist. Human pride and all its foolishness was on display and broken at the cross. That's the day pride died. Ever since then it's been bet a in, it's been the house of futility. Human pride is ridiculous. Human pride is utter silliness. Human pride is vapid and vain and empty and the cross speaks the truth. That it's the humility of a God that saves people and breaks our pride. God will ultimately and finally break all pride. I wanna finish with this. Isaiah chapter two. Isaiah chapter two, just listen to this. So the common man has been humbled. The man of importance has been abased, but do not forgive them. Enter the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The proud look of man will be abased. The loftiness of man will be humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty, against everyone who is lifted up, that he may be abased. And it will be all the cedars of Lebanon that are lofty and lifted up against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, against the hills that are lifted up, against every high tower, every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, against all the beautiful craft. The pride of man will be humbled. The loftiness of men will be abased and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. The idols will completely vanish. Men will go into the caves of the rocks, into the holes of the ground before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he arises to make the earth tremble. And we're gonna see that happen. Revelation chapter six describes that exact thing. In that day men will cast away to the moles and the bats their idols of silver and their idols of gold which they made for themselves to worship in order to go into the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he arises to make the earth tremble. Stop regarding man whose breath is in his nostrils. Why should he be esteemed? How do we break pride? We humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord. We become a humble people before Jesus who humbled himself more than anyone ever has or will. Following Jesus, it means entering the fray. Coming to faith is going to war, but I ask the question again, would you say to Jesus, here I am, I must die? Would you give your life to your Lord? He who has found his life will lose it. He who has lost his life for my sake will find it. That's the heart of a humble soldier. Father, we thank you for your word this morning and pray, Lord, whatever aspect of this needs to be applied to our lives, we would hear and respond and obey. Lord, that you would break the pride in me, that you would break the pride in our fellowship, that you would break the pride, Lord, in anything that we do, that we would not be about lifting ourselves up and declaring how right or good or great we are before you. But with humility, we would as your servants bow the knee to you and say, Lord, we will fight for you. Perhaps in this day, you will deliver us. But even if you don't, Father, even if my life, must be forfeit in this fight, so be it. Here I am, I must die. But Lord, you promised he who loses his life, will save it, will find it in that day. So Lord, I pray that you will break the pride in us and teach us to humbly fight for you, in Jesus' name, amen. You know, it is pride that keeps people from the Lord. It is pride that keeps one from saying I need Jesus. It's pride that keeps one from saying, I repent, I'm sorry, Lord, I'm a sinner. Lord, I have made bad decisions in my life. Lord, I've aligned myself with the enemy without even realizing it. Or Lord, I'm hiding out from the the battle. I'm just kind of staying out of the fray. Pride is what causes all of that. And so I invite you to ask the Lord to break the pride in you this morning, whatever it might be, whatever he needs to do in each of us that we might be humble servants. And if you've never received Jesus as Lord and Savior, I invite you to do it this morning.